Could he find a seat? Uh, yeah, but if people sit down. Blanche, you need to sit down. <laughs> okay. Um, we have a Royal Ranger Advancement Ceremony coming up on Tuesday. and um, But uh, Toby, unfortunately, uh, has another thing that he can't break and is not going to be able to... Uh, uh, participate in our advancement ceremony. So we're doing a special advancement ceremony just for Toby. <laughs> so before we do that, um, I'm going to show a little video about what Royal Rangers is all about. Uh, some of you may not be aware of that, but uh, it's uh, not too long, and I think you would enjoy it. That's Royal Rangers. Uh, we're outpost 290, not outpost 56, but we don't have our own promotional video. Um, we do a lot of fun things, though, uh, although we are not going to be doing atomic energy. So <laughs> don't need to worry about that. So, uh, Toby, could you come up, please? I didn't think I needed to tell him to wear a uniform, but apparently I did. <laughs> so anyways, Toby is in Adventure Rangers, and that's the group of uh, 6th, 7th, and 8th graders. And um, Toby has been working really hard, and uh, he has uh, actually finished uh, his second year of Adventure Ranger stuff. And so Toby is going to be receiving the pine, cedar, oak, and Sequoia uh, badges. And as far as merits, these are different specific activities that we do. Uh, Toby is going to be receiving the air rifle, the BB gun, advanced marksmanship, orienteering, wood carving, compass, and the leadership award number 203. In addition, he's going to be receiving a card called the Firearm Safety Card, which is kind of like the Toolcraft Safety Card, where you get to be able to carry a gun, hopefully very safely, because he's learned all that, um, but he's entitled to it if he um, chooses to. So, Toby, congratulations. All right, congratulations, Toby. All right, so we're just going to go over what we have coming up within the next few weeks here. Um, we're really busy. Um, 
this upcoming week. We have our women's night, which is going to be led by Alyssa. Um, so we're going to show up at the gate and then we're going to go on a Christmas light scavenger hunt. Um, so I'm really excited about that. Um, and then we're going to come back to the gate for some hot cocoa. I think we're going to have like a hot cocoa bar and cookies and stuff like that. So if you're just kind of looking for something to do this week to relax, um, have fun and, um, fellowship together, um, with other women, we really encourage you to come, um, this Wednesday. We also have some caroling, Christmas caroling with the Youth Quest. Um, yesterday we were making some Christmas cards to hand out to the seniors at Hilton East. Um, and then this week we're going to go walk down there, sing some songs for them, give out some Christmas cards, and just kind of spread some Christmas cheer to them um, this year. So um, meet us at the gate at 545 um, this Saturday for that. Um, and then, so this Sunday is what we've been talking about. Um, the Christmas story is going to be shared by Rob. We're really excited about it. Um, Rob is really excited about it. Um, <laughs> the other week he asked me if it was too much to bring some hounds in to, <laughs> to fully bring the effect of the Christmas story. So um, we have cards on the table if you want to hand that out to friends. We also made a Facebook event if you would want to just click share on that and share with your friends um, on your Facebook page or share it on your Instagram story or just kind of help get the word out about what we're doing this week. We really have some some cool um, activities share, um, ready for that. And that Sunday is going to be a family Sunday. So there's no kids quest, but there is going to be nursery. Um, just to let you know about that. And yeah, so if you have other um, announcements or events coming up, feel free to email me at kathy at lifequest.cc and we'll be sure to get that on the bulletin for you. All right, thanks. Green light. All right. So, Grab your Christmas story invites that are on your table. Because after today, uh, they make no sense for us to keep them. So everybody, pass them around your table until there are no more Christmas invites left. And your mission this week is to get rid of these, not by putting them in the garbage or in the uh, drainage ditch underneath the overpass uh, like I did when I was a kid. Um, with the inserts for the newspaper. Uh, don't put them in there. Find a human that doesn't come to LifeQuest and invite them to join us. Um, it's going to be, it's going to be a fun Sunday. It's going to be, a, I, I think, a powerful Sunday for us, uh, to revisit the Christmas story. And it'll be fun, uh, just to kind of share the experience of, of Ralphie's memories of Christmas. Um, so we'll have a, that we have a guest speaker. Uh, next weekend, and uh, some surprises um, that I'm, I'm pretty, pretty excited about. There could be a major award present. Uh, there could be, who knows what could happen next weekend. It's going to be, it's going to be a lot of fun. So next Sunday is flit. This is not flannel. Would you like to come feel it? It is plaid, not flannel. Not, there we go. Oh, very nice. Next Sunday is Flannel Sunday. So uh, wear a flannel shirt. Uh, if you want to wear flannel PJs, totally up to you. Um, I have a friend who's coming who has taken it to the next level. Uh, you can't wait to see him next Sunday. It's going to be awesome. Um, this morning, we are going to jump into the book of Hebrews. Uh, this past week, we read the book of Philemon, uh, and then through the book of Hebrews. And uh, if you're if you're still with us on the journey of reading through the Bible this year in 2018, um, awesome, great job, keep it, keep going. We're almost done. We're almost through. That that in the next two weeks, uh, this coming week is going to be a blister of 
New Testament books because they're all really, really short. As we go through James, first and second Peter, first and first, second, third John, uh, Jude, uh, and then and then a bunch in Revelation, and then we then you've done it. Uh, anybody here? This is the first time you've ever successfully read through the Bible in a year. Gail, yeah. Caleb, awesome. Melissa, fantastic. Yeah, awesome. Toby, yeah, at a boy. Um, I'm excited. Right, putting God's word in our hearts changes things because it changes us. Um, and and that's what I've I've really really enjoyed. Um, praying and planning through what what God want, wants us to do in 2019. Um, I want to continue to encourage you once we cross over into January, do it again. Every time you read God's Word, He shows you something different. He shows you something new, right? It's because Timothy, when we remember when we read in Timothy that God's Word is living and active. It's not just black and white words on a page. His word is alive and it speaks to us. Amen. Amen. So this morning we're going to jump into the book of Hebrews and uh, we'll let uh, Tim give us the intro, the overview of what the book of Hebrews is all about. The letter to the Hebrews. The author of this letter is anonymous and people have wondered for a long time whether Paul wrote it or maybe one of his co-workers like Barnabas or Apollos, but really we just don't know. In chapter 2, we discover that the author had a first-hand relationship with the disciples who were themselves around Jesus, so we know that this letter is anchored in the teaching of the apostles. We also don't know who the audience of this letter was or even where they lived. The author knows them really well, and he assumes that they have a thorough knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures, especially the storyline of the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, about how Abraham's family became the nation of Israel, about how Moses led them out of slavery in Egypt to Mount Sinai, where they received the Torah and they made a covenant with God where they built the tabernacle, where the priests offered sacrifices, and also about how they wandered through the wilderness on their way to the promised land. The author just expects that the readers know all of the details about these stories. And so most likely the audience is made up of Jewish Christians. That's where the name of the letter comes from. We also have clues from chapter 10 that this church community was facing persecution and even imprisonment because of their association with Jesus. Some in the community were walking away from Jesus and abandoning the faith altogether. And this explains the purpose and the structure of this letter. First, there's a short introduction, which is followed by four sections where the author compares and contrasts Jesus with key people and events from Israel's history. Jesus is first compared with angels in the Torah, second with Moses and the Promised Land, third with priests and Melchizedek, and lastly with the sacrifices and the covenant. And the author has two main goals in all of these contrasts. The first goal is to elevate Jesus as superior to anyone or anything else, showing that Jesus is worthy of all their trust and devotion. But his second goal is this, it's to challenge the readers to remain faithful to Jesus despite persecution. So in every section, he includes a strong warning not to abandon Jesus. So let's dive in now and see how this all unfolds. The elevation of Jesus begins in the opening sentence of the introduction. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors in many different ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. So the author saying that Jesus is superior to all of the previous ways that God has revealed himself to Israel. He then makes this astounding claim that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's nature. These metaphors are making the closest possible identification between Jesus and God. So Jesus is what the rays of light are to the sun, or Jesus is what the wax impression is to the signet ring. For this author, there is no God apart from Jesus. Jesus is God become human as the Son. And it's this elevated view of Jesus that's then explored throughout the rest of the letter. In the first section, the author compares Jesus with angels, which might strike you as kind of odd, like why angels? In Jewish tradition, it was taught, based on Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 2, that the Torah and the words of God were delivered to Moses at Mount Sinai by angels. And so by saying that Jesus is superior to angels, the author is claiming that Jesus and his message of good news are superior to all previous messengers of God's word. And so the first warning flows from this very point. 
if Israel was called to pay attention to the Torah that was delivered by angels, how much more should we pay attention to the message that was announced by the Son of God? And not only that, given Jesus' status high above the angels, how remarkable is it that he gave up that high status to become human, to suffer, and to die? In Jesus, we see God's greatest glory and God's great humility as Jesus sympathetically joined himself to humanity's tragic fate. In chapters 3 and 4, the author moves on to argue that Jesus is superior to Moses, who led the people of Israel through the wilderness and built the tabernacle. Jesus is also the leader of God's people, but in him we see not the builder of just a tent, but of all creation. Then the author retells the story of how the Israelites rebelled against Moses in the wilderness and they lost their chance to enter into the rest that God offered them in the promised land. And so here comes the second warning. If Jesus is greater than Moses, how much higher are the stakes if we rebel against him? We also are in a wilderness-like environment where we have to trust God for the future rest in God's new creation. So let's make sure that we don't rebel like Israel did in the wilderness and lose out on God's gracious offer to enter his new creation. In chapters 5 through 7, the author then compares Jesus with Israel's priests that come from the line of Aaron. Their role was to represent Israel before God and to offer sacrifices that atoned for or covered over the sins of the people. But, he points out, the priests were themselves morally flawed people, and so they constantly had to offer sacrifices for their own sins as well as for everybody else's. Something more was needed. And so he then argues that Jesus was that something more. He's the ultimate priest. But Jesus did not come from the line of Aaron. Rather, Jesus was a priest in the order of Melchizedek that mysterious priest king from ancient Jerusalem, and he appears in the stories about Abraham. We also find in Psalm 110 that the messianic king from the line of David will be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. So the author's whole point is this. Jesus is the ultimate priest king. He's morally flawless. He's eternally available for his people. And so he's superior to any other mediator between God and humans. And thus comes his warning in this section. To reject Jesus is to reject one's best and only chance to be fully reconciled to God. So don't do that which transitions us into the last comparison in chapters 8 through 10. The author shows how Jesus' death on the cross was the ultimate sacrifice superior to all the animal sacrifices offered in the temple. Those sacrifices had to be offered constantly, both daily but also yearly on the Day of Atonement. Jesus offered his life once and for all, and it was sufficient to cover the sins of the whole world. And so the author warns the audience from walking away from Jesus. It's like turning your back on a gracious offer of God's forgiveness. Why would you do that? Jesus' sacrifice is permanent, he says, and it's the foundation for the new covenant spoken of in the prophets, where all sins are forgiven. So now that the author has elevated Jesus through all of these contrasts, This final section is one big challenge to follow Jesus. So think big picture. In Jesus, they have found God's very word. In Jesus, they have hope for the new creation. Jesus is their eternal priest. He's the perfect sacrifice. And so now they should follow all the great models of faith found throughout the story of the scriptures, and they should remain faithful to Jesus, trusting that despite whatever hardship and persecution, God will not abandon his people. That's the basic flow of thought throughout the letter, which the author calls right here at the very end a brief word of exhortation. Here's a couple of extra tips for reading this letter. Whenever the author quotes from the Old Testament scriptures, which is like every other sentence, stop and go look up the reference and read that quotation in its original context. And sometimes you'll be puzzled, but more often you'll see all kinds of extra cool connections that you would never notice otherwise. It's totally worth the effort. You should also just know that these warning passages, they're going to make you uncomfortable, and that's kind of the point. They're not there to make you afraid. They're there to show you that rejecting Jesus is foolish because he's so awesome. These warnings all serve the larger purpose of the letter, to show that Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God's love and mercy. And that's what the letter of the Hebrews is all about. Wow. Right? Intense. It's a good word. And good. Um, wow.
So this morning, I want to talk to you about encouragement, um, especially in this season of the year when there are lots of things that uh, create discouragement, when we are struggling with uh, maybe family relationships, maybe we're, we're grieving the, the loss of a loved one and it's the first Christmas without that person around the table. We're, we're discouraged uh, because maybe things aren't going the way that we thought that they would at school or at work or with our, with our families. And, and I, I want to, I want to talk about being mightily encouraged in the Lord. So if you have your Bibles, uh, turn to Hebrews chapter 6, and we're going to read verses 9 through 20. Um, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 9 through 20. I'm reading out of the New Living Translation. And it goes like this. It says, Dear friends, even though we are talking this way, we really don't believe it applies to you. We are confident that you are meant for better things, things that come with salvation. For God is not unjust. He will not forget how hard you have worked for him and how you have shown your love to him by caring for other believers, as you still do. Verse 11, Our great desire is that you will keep on loving others as long as life lasts, in order to make certain that you... Uh, that what you hope for will come true. Then you will not become spiritually dull and indifferent. Instead, you will follow the example of those who are going to inherit God's promises because of their faith and endurance. This is God's promise, and it brings hope. In verse 13, he says, For example, there was God's promise to Abraham. Since there was no one greater to swear by, God took an oath in his own name, saying, I will certainly bless you, and I will multiply your descendants beyond number. Then Abraham waited patiently, and he received what God had promised. Verse 16, now when people take an oath, they call on someone greater than themselves to hold them to it. And without any question, That oath is binding. God also bound himself with an oath so that those who received the promise could be perfectly sure that he would never change his mind. So God has given both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence or we can be mightily encouraged as we hold to the hope that lies before us. This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. Jesus has already gone in there for us. He has become our eternal high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now, let's go back at, back to verse 18. It says, So God has given both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because it's impossible for God to lie. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence. In the King James Version, it says that we can, we will be mightily encouraged as we hold to the hope that lies before us. So today, this morning, those of us, we who have, have run to Him for refuge can be mightily encouraged. We can have strong confidence that He will do what He promised he would do. So what does that mean? What does it mean to be mightily encouraged? Why, why do we need to be mightily encouraged? Um, how does God see to it that you are mightily encouraged? And what? who is it that produces people that are mightily encouraged? This morning, as, as Tim said really, really well, Hebrews is a letter to Jewish believers, Christians that are somewhere in the ancient world. We're not sure who they are. 
Uh, we're not sure who the author is. Uh, some people think it's Paul. Some people think it's a bunch of other people. But they, what we do know beyond a shadow of a doubt is that these people that are, that are the audience of the book of Hebrews are people who are going through a hard time. They are being tried. They are being tested. They are being persecuted. And, and some were thinking about leaving grace and going back to the law. They were thinking, you know what, maybe this just isn't going to work for me. I'm going to go back to the way we did it before. They were thinking about drifting and slipping backwards. And, and some of them were in a position to hear a great word from God. And so this message to the Hebrews is, is powerful for them as they are going through a difficult time. And it's powerful for us. Whether you feel like you're going through some great tribulation or not, this book, uh, this letter has, has a message for us this morning. And so in, in chapter 5 of Hebrews, chapter 5 verse 10, it talks about uh, God, uh, called of God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. What does that mean? Why, why does that matter? Um, and, and so if you look in chapter 5 verse 10, it talks about this high priest in the order of Melchizedek, who is the, the mysterious priest king that uh, ministers and, and speaks into Abraham's life in Genesis. And then in chapter 7 of Hebrews, 7 um, verse 1, again it talks about, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. And so then chapter 6 is kind of sandwiched in between these two uh, mentions of Melchizedek, this high priest, uh, who had a powerful role in Abraham's life in the Old Testament. And now he is saying Jesus is in that same group. He's that same kind of, of person. And so this entire section in chapter 6 is about Jesus as our high priest. And, and this inter, interruption in between chapter 5 verse 10 and verse 7, uh, chapter 7 verse 1, is, is an encouragement, an, an amazing exhortation for us to keep growing in the Lord. To keep going. Don't give up. Don't quit. Don't stop. I don't know if you remember, uh, last year at New Year's Eve, I was uh, sharing with us about never giving up. Um, I, we, had, we had just watched the, um, the Winston Churchill movie. Um, and, and Winston Churchill's, uh, his, his proclamation to, uh, the nation of England during World War II that we will never give up. We will never give up. Never, never, never give up. Right? And, and, I, you know, I, I shared a, a few stories about, um, my experiences in Bible college, but my, Dr. Crandall, uh, the president of Zion Bible Institute when I was there, he would echo that uh, never, never, never give up. Um, right? You know, and, and because it's one of those things where, um, once you, once you cut and run, it becomes so much easier the next time you hit opposition to just cut and run. And once you start, once you create that pattern of behavior that when things get hard, I'm gonna cut and run, you then become uh, a runner for the rest of your life. And so what, what the author of Hebrews is saying to these Christians who are struggling with difficulty in their lives about 2,000 years ago, don't give up, keep going. He's saying the same thing to us here this morning. Don't give up, keep going, keep growing. So what's interesting is there are some symptoms of a non-growing Christian that we can pull out of this. In, in verse 11, um, he talks about uh, our great desire is that you will keep on loving others as long as life lasts. And, uh, and then in verse 12, he says, and then you will, then you will not become spiritually dull and indifferent. Listen to how, um, this comes out. I actually like the way it comes across in the King James. Um, in verse 11, it says that there was dullness in hearing the word. That, that means that, that the word was being presented, but they couldn't hear it. It was like my dad, 
uh, standing in our circle of communion this morning, and my mom was praying, but she was praying softly, and he couldn't hear it. Right? That there, a prayer was prayed, but he couldn't hear it. And there are times when as Christians, when we have kind of, uh, when we have resisted God, that God is speaking to us, but we're dull. We can't hear it. I, I, I never forget. There was, um, a youth convention that I was at. There was this guy named Reggie Dabbs who was speaking and Reggie, Reggie's the bomb. He's amazing. And it was in that time period. So I was a youth pastor a long time ago. And the, the sixth sense had just come out or had been out, right? So everybody was quoting, I see dead people, right? There are dead people all around me and, and I see them everywhere. And, and Reggie was speaking at youth convention and he put a twist on it and he said, I see dull people. They're, they're dull and they don't even know they're dull, right? Because when you've allowed dullness, into your life. You're dull and you don't even know it. A non-growing Christian is dull in hearing the Word. That means that they were slipping because they had stopped feeding themselves the Word of God. And, and the author is saying, don't. Don't get dull. Then in verse 12, uh, this is again another great word. Um, in, in the New Living Translation, uh, it actually says... Um, in verse 12, it's, it says, don't become spiritually dull and indifferent. Uh, but in the King James, it's this awesome word. There was slothfulness in sharing the word. Slothfulness. Say that word with me. Slothfulness. Right? We, that's a great word. Um, not because we want to be slothful. Um, but you know, do anybody remember what's, what was the movie with all the animals? Was it Zootopia? And uh, they went to the Department of Motor Vehicles, and the 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 person who's yeah 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 right. And so the guy who's working at the DMV, of course, has to be a sloth, right? Because you feel like when you go to the DMV, it's like, can I help you? Um, but there was a non-growing person is slothful in sharing the word. A, a, a slothful Christian is someone who is like, feed me, feed me, feed me. But don't ask me to feed others and give to others and serve others. That takes work. Right? Dull, non-growing Christians. Slothful, non-growing Christians. There was even in verse 13, there was a danger in resisting internal change. Right? We want it the way we want it. Don't change it. Don't, don't make us sing new songs. Don't make us do new things. Don't make us stretch outside of our comfort zones. Don't make us take over ministries uh, that we we really never thought that we would be in charge of, right? Don't make us stretch ourselves and 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 lead youth ministries or serve in the nursery or or you know don't make me do things that make me uncomfortable. Some are still living on milk and baby food, right? I mean, baby food is great if you are a couple of months old, um, and unfortunately, the cycle of life is. You know, at some point, if you're in a nursing home, you end up eating baby food again. Um, I know, right? Not something to look forward to. But right now, as healthy adult humans, if if we had a potluck and the only thing that was put out at the potluck were individual jars of beech nut baby food, would you be excited about that? No. No one would. Um I, I love, I play this game with the fifth graders at the fifth grade picnic every year, um, called the coin of destiny. And I, and I have this wooden coin that has a skull and crossbones on one side and a smiley sunshine face on the other. And then I have two baskets with a skull and crossbones and a smiley face on it. And the kids come up 
and they flip the coin of destiny. It's this big wooden coin. It flips up in the air and it lands. And if it lands on smiles and sunshine, they get to eat something from out of the sunshine basket. And it's things like mandarin oranges or uh, a fruit roll-up or, you know, a, a piece of candy. And if it lands skull and crossbones, they have to eat whatever is in the skull and crossbones basket. And it's like turkey beech nut baby food or uh, a can of sardines in mustard sauce, right? And they have to eat it. Like if they want points for their team, they have to eat it. Um, so much fun. I love that game. Doesn't have anything to do with my message. It's just a lot of fun. Baby food. I took the baby food. You took me on the, the rabbit trail. Um, you know, it's not a good youth event if someone doesn't throw up. It's just true. Just lessons learned. It's a little bit. Not too much, but a little. Yes, you have, right? Good job. I, I'll tell this one story and then we'll jump back in. So, when I was a youth pastor, we would always play these gross and disgusting games. And, uh, all throughout the year. And then at the end of the year, one, we would have a big lock-in overnight. And the kids came to me one year and they said, what if we did this? What if we took all the gross games that we played all year long and we do them all at the New Year's Eve all-nighter? And I'm like, Gross Fest 2000. Yes. So we had, we, we had this one game where, uh, I had a fish tank, and it was full of little one-inch feeders. And they were lined up in teams. And they had to send one kid up to the tank, and a youth leader scooped the fish out, and the kid had to eat the fish and go to the back of the line. Yes. So, so the team that consumed the greatest quantity of fish won, right? I had one... Ninth grade girl, she ate 17 goldfish. She didn't throw up either. And, and then for giggles, just for fun, I got one of those, like, koi, like, really big goldfish. And, and one of my kids was like, what, how many points will you give me if I eat gill? And, and I'm like, I'll give you a lot of points. If, but he was big. And, and so I had this, so he's like, I'm going to do it. And I'm like, all right, let's do it. And, and so we're getting Gil, we scoop him out and Gil's like, you know, those nets for the fish tanks are not very big. And so Gil's kind of hanging out of the net. He's like that big. And all I could imagine is him swallowing Gil and then Gil flaring on his way down. And now I have this kid choking on a fish. I'm like, no, that's not going to work. Get the blender. Yeah. So Gil went in the blender, and then he drank Gil for like a bazillion points. It was it was awesome. So anyways, ideas. No? Okay. It was just like the bassinetic. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's okay. It's New Year's Eve. Gross Fest 2018. I like it. I like it. How do I recover from that? I don't know. You don't. You don't recover. You just keep going. Um, danger zone Christians don't feed themselves the things that they should. Ah, good segue, right? Danger zone Christians make sure that they are feeding themselves not on baby food, not on goldfish, but on the meat of God's Word. Danger zone Christians uh, are Christians that that maybe they fail to get out of the feeding line and and reach out to feed others. Danger zone Christians fail to grow deeper and live only on a milk and baby food diet. Danger zone Christians fail to exercise our spiritual man that results in our inability to discern from the flesh and the spirit. And, and as we've read through Hebrews this morning or today or, or this past week, 
that idea that, that there is, a, there is effort on our part to run this race. That the, in, in chapter 12 and chapter 13 where he's talking about running the race completely, we have to run like a winner or like a runner who wants to win the race that we need to shed off all of those things that distract us. So for us as Christians, um, I just want to hit things really, really quickly. Um, the first thing, three absolutes are guaranteed for us. That we can be mightily encouraged because of God's word to Abraham. In verse 13, God made a promise to Abraham. And it's that promise all the way back that we've been talking about all year long. That God promised that he was going to bless Abraham, bless his family, and through Abraham's family, that the whole world, all the nations would be blessed. We can be encouraged because God kept that promise. He gave Abraham a son. Now, Abraham tried to answer that promise on his own, right? And he, he messed around with his wife's servant and, and had a son, uh, Ishmael, and tried to do it on his own. Um, but God was like, that's not what I meant when I said, I promise you're going to have a son, right? When Abraham was 75 years old, God made the promise. You would think that if I were Abraham, uh, or if you were Abraham, that if God promised me at 76 already, uh, well past the age of being, of not only being able to have children, but having the energy to parent children, right? Could you imagine having a baby in your house now, Ed and Marcia? No, right? A grandchild that someone else takes care of, but, but God would say to you guys that in a year, there's going to be a baby in the Chambry house. That would not be a cause for celebration. But, but for Abraham, so God gives the promise to Abraham at 75, and so Abraham's thinking, awesome, nine months, right? So when I'm 76, Sarah will be 75, we're going to be good to go. Maybe. And God says, yeah, it's going to take a little longer than that. It's going to take 25 years. And now he's 99. It says in verse 15, it says, so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. There are some things that, that God has promised us that it may take some time to see it come to pass. But if God promised it, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. What did Abraham have to do? He had to patiently endure. And then he had to, 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 then he received the promise. Maybe you're waiting for an answer like Abraham. God always keeps his promises, right? That passage that we just read, God is un, he's incapable of lying. Um, he made a promise to Abraham and we can be encouraged because God's word to Abraham. Number two, we can be mightily encouraged because of God's word to himself. Verse 16, it says uh, that, that men swear by a greater authority, an oath for confirmation so that you can end an argument, right? So when you go into court, you put your hand on a Bible and you say, uh, I swear to tell the truth, so help me God, right? I'm, I'm, I'm putting an oath on God's word and I'm making a pledge before you, before God, that I'm going to tell the truth. Well, I, I don't know if you've ever seen uh, the Evan Almighty uh, movie, um, but in, in Evan Almighty, God is there, and, and I think there's a, a line where he comes in and says, what in the name of me is going on in here, right? And, and so God, when he makes the promise to Abraham, he's saying, uh, I promise Abraham that I'm going to keep this promise to you, so help me, me is what this is saying, that God said there's no higher authority than God. That God's promise, that his, his, we can be encouraged that God keeps his word to himself. It's impossible for God to lie. And we can be encouraged in that because the recipients of that promise, the heirs of Abraham's promise, do you know where they are right now? 
They're sitting right here in this room. Exactly. It's us. And so God has this word for the Hebrew Christians who are weary and discouraged and faint because of all the difficulty that they were experiencing. And God has a word for you. If you are tired, if you are, if you are discouraged, that, that He keeps His promises. Number one, because He gave His promise to Abraham. Number two, because He gave a promise to Himself. And number three, He gave, we can be encouraged because of God's word to us. God promises to be our refuge. That when we are, when we are in need, we can run to Him. And what that is, when you, when you see that in, um, in verse 20, um, no, not in verse 20, um, let me go back to it. Where he talks about us having that refuge that we can run to, um, verse 18, thank you very much. So God has given us his, he's given his promise and his oath. And these two things are unchangeable because it's impossible for God to lie. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge, and have great confidence. We can be mightily encouraged. Um, that's a sim- It's a, a reference back to an idea called the cities of refuge. That if you accidentally killed someone, that you could run to a city of refuge and no one could touch you there. And so the Jordan River divided Israel kind of in half, east and west. And he strategically said there's going to be three cities of refuge on this side of the river and three cities of refuge on this side of the river. And if something happens and it's not your fault, you can run to those cities of refuge and be safe. So that was a, that was a constant that was, it was in their culture that was in their consciousness that, that if you blew it, like the ultimate blowing it was you, you through some no fault of your own, you caused the death of another person. The, the law said that if, if Laura killed Toby, even if it was an accident, it was within my rights to go after Laura and seek vengeance on her, right? Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, kill my kid, I get to kill you. And that was okay. That was in the law. But if Laura could get to the city of refuge before I got to her, she's safe. This is that idea of refuge that you are, we are in, we are in, in fear for our lives, but He is our refuge. He is our high priest interceding for us. That nothing can touch us without His approval. That, that whatever surprises us doesn't scare Him. It doesn't surprise Him. We have a refuge and we have an anchor. That, that His anchor is sure and steadfast, right? A few weeks ago, we were talking about uh, the storms of life and how do we navigate through the storm. And in, in verse 20, he says that he is the anchor that is sure and steadfast. Now, I, I'm a canoe guy. We don't really carry anchors uh, because that means that I have to portage an anchor. But if you are, which is no bueno, uh, to have to, to have to portage an anchor. But if you're a boater, an anchor is a vital piece of equipment on your boat. Because when you drop that anchor, it locks you into position so that you are safe. Right? It keeps you from either being dragged into shore, it keeps you from being sucked out into open water when you've put that anchor down and it is firmly grabbed the, the earth, whether it's in the sand or by a rock, that anchor is what holds you in the storm. And he's saying that Jesus is our anchor. And he is sure and he is steadfast. He cannot slip. He cannot break. So this morning, the only one that's safe in the city of refuge was the one who fled to that city. Maybe you're here this morning and and you don't feel safe. Maybe you feel like, man, I'm. I feel like I'm always running. Stop running today. Turn to the one who is your only refuge, the only one who can rescue you. Maybe you're here today and you're discouraged. You're just like, man, I feel like a punching bag this season, and I'm just, I can't, I just, I just can't seem to catch my breath. 
He wants you to be mightily encouraged. He wants you to experience His confidence that it's not in us, but it's in Him that we live and move and have our being. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank You that You are our refuge. Maybe there's someone here today that they need that from You. They feel lost. They feel away from You. But Lord, all we have to do is turn to You and ask, Lord, forgive me. Lord, I need Your mercy. I've blown it over and over and over again today, Lord. I run to You. I ask for Your forgiveness. Lord, maybe there's people here this morning that they feel like they are just battered in the storm. Lord, help us to remember that You are our anchor that is sure and steadfast. You will hold us in the storm. Help us, Lord, today to be mightily encouraged because of who You are. That You can be trusted. That it's impossible for You to lie. Lord, we, we, we trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Blessings. This week, go back to Hebrews chapter 6. If you're struggling this season, let him be your refuge and your anchor. Amen. And blessings. Uh, the Rangers have their, um, their award ceremony on Tuesday. And then ladies, you've got your thing on Wednesday at the gate. and Have fun on the, the, the scavenger hunt. Please uh, don't leave any Christmas story invitations on the tables. Take them all. After today, um, they, they're pointless for us to keep. Um, if, I mean, we'll keep one as a, hey, look at this awesome card we made. Um, grab them, pass them out, give them to waiters, give them to the person, the cashier at the the grocery store, give them to a coworker, give them, if you go intentionally go to a full serve gas station, give them a good tip and an invitation. Um, blessings. Have a great week. It is an egg Sunday. Yeah. They're in the back and there's bread too.